Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible, because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 134, Reactions to Barbarossa. Last time, Hitler launched his massive attack against Soviet Russia to prove to Great Britain just how hopeless their struggle and faith in Stalin really was. Army Group Center quickly shredded Soviet defenses from Bielystok to Minsk as German panzers made their way to just west of that city. Within days, the Germans there had killed or captured some 340,000 Soviet soldiers. The Soviet first line of defense, almost along the entire front between Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, was shattered. But what was the reaction of the Man of Steel, Stalin, in Moscow to all this? What's more, how did Churchill and President Roosevelt react when the news officially reached them, seeing how they had known something was in the offing and had tried to warn Premier Stalin? As for the man in Moscow, who seemed to believe he could turn his country and Germany away from a collision course, Stalin went to bed on June 22, 1941, around 3 a.m. Not one hour later, his country was at war, without a declaration, with the experienced, battle-hardened Wehrmacht, some 3.3 million soldiers. There was only one thing for it. Stalin, ever the realist, threw himself into the defense of the Soviet Russia. And because he trusted no one, the majority of the decisions, some questions of the smallest detail, had to go through him. Of course, this meant that the man was awake for many more hours than he slept during the first few days of war. Nikita Khrushchev, Stalin's successor, would later write that the leader was, by then, a bag of bones in a gray tunic. As we will see in greater detail in the next episode, when Minsk was captured by Armour Group Center on June 28th, Stalin, for a lack of a better word, snapped. The fall of this city meant that German forces had penetrated some 300 miles into Soviet territory.
But what's more, the path to Smolensk, and beyond that, Moscow itself, was now open. Stalin went to where his top generals were, including General Zhukov, as they were trying to direct their forces, and unleashed such a torrent at these grown, hard-faced men that even Zhukov wept. Stalin, after his tirade, now spent, turned and said as he was walking out, Lenin founded our state, and we've fucked it up. He then went straight to his dacha. The Soviet state was now without the man who had been making such detailed decisions as how long a bayonet should be. But that was only after Stalin sat stunned in his office on June 22nd, as report after report came in, telling of one German advance after another. So on the evening of the first day of war, the first remarks to the country by the country's leadership came, not from Stalin, but from Molotov. Here is an abridged version of his radio address. Citizens of the Soviet Union, the Soviet government and its head, Comrade Stalin, have authorized me to make the following statement. At 4 o'clock a.m., without any claims having been presented to the Soviet Union, without a declaration of war, German troops attacked our country, attacked our borders at many points, and bombed from their airplanes our cities. There were also enemy air raids and artillery shelling from Romanian and Finnish territory. This unheard-of attack upon our country is perfidy unparalleled in the history of civilized nations. The attack on our country was perpetrated despite the fact that a treaty of non-aggression has been signed between the USSR and Germany, and that the Soviet government most faithfully abided by all provisions of this treaty. Entire responsibility for this predatory attack upon the Soviet Union falls fully and completely upon the German fascist rulers. At 5.30 a.m., that is, after the attack had already been perpetrated, von der Schulenberg, the German ambassador in Moscow, on behalf of his government, made the statement to me as People's Commissar of Foreign Affairs to the effect that the German government has decided to launch war against the USSR in connection with the concentration of Red Army units near the eastern German frontier. In reply to this, I stated on behalf of the Soviet government that until the very last moment, the German government had not presented any claims to the Soviet government, that Germany attacked the USSR despite the peaceable position of the Soviet Union, and that, for this reason, fascist Germany is the aggressor. On instruction of the government of the Soviet Union, I also stated that at no point had our troops or air force committed a violation of the frontier, and therefore the statement made this morning by the Romanian radio to the effect that Soviet aircraft allegedly had fired on Romanian aerodromes is a sheer lie and provocation. Now that the attack of the Soviet Union has already been committed, the Soviet government has ordered our troops to repulse the predatory assault and to drive German troops from the territory of our country. This war has been forced upon us, not by the German people, not by the German workers, peasants, and intellectuals, whose sufferings we well understand, but by the clique of bloodthirsty fascist rulers of Germany, who have enslaved Frenchmen, Czechs, Poles, Serbians, Norway, Belgium, 
Denmark, Holland, Greece, and other nations. The government of the Soviet Union expresses its unshakable confidence that our valiant army and navy and brave falcons of the Soviet Air Force will acquit themselves with honor in performing their duty to the fatherland and to the Soviet people and will inflict a crushing blow upon the aggressor. This is not the first time that our people have had to deal with an attack of an arrogant foe. At the time of Napoleon's invasion of Russia, our people's reply was war for the fatherland, and Napoleon suffered defeat and met his doom. It will be the same with Hitler, who, in his arrogance, has proclaimed a new crusade against our country. The Red Army and our whole people will again wage victorious war for the fatherland, for our country, for honor, for liberty. The government of the Soviet Union expresses the firm conviction that the whole population of our country, all workers, peasants, and intellectuals, men and women, will conscientiously perform their duties and do their work. Our entire people must now stand solid and united as never before. Each one of us must demand of himself and of others discipline, organization, and self-denial worthy of real Soviet patriots in order to provide for all the needs of the Red Army, Navy, and Air Force to ensure victory over the enemy. The government calls upon you, citizens of the Soviet Union, to rally still more closely around our glorious Bolshevist party, around our Soviet government, around our great leader and comrade, Stalin. Ours is a righteous cause. The enemy shall be defeated. Victory will be ours. Three days had passed since Stalin had disappeared, as the generals had heard not one word from their leader. So, ranking politicians and some of those generals, led by the likes of Molotov, Beria, Stalin's chief of secret police, and Voroshilov, defense commissar, went to see what had become of the man they had learned to fear. Stalin sat at his desk and looked as though he had not moved from there since they last saw him. Without looking up, Stalin asked, Why have you come? Some would later write that they believed Stalin thought they were there to arrest him, having lost their state to the Germans. Others believed, apropos of how Ivan the Terrible handled a crisis during his reign, that Stalin was testing the loyalty of these men. Either way, Molotov answered the question, We're asking you to return to work. Stalin replied, But can I live up to people's expectations? Can I lead the nation to a final victory? There may be more deserving candidates. To wit, and probably saving all their lives, Voroshilov, the defense commissar, said, There's none more worthy. This brought some life to Stalin's eyes. Molotov used this opening to state that what they needed was a state defense committee. The supposed dejected leader replied, Yes, but with whom at its head? The immediate response was, You, Comrade Stalin, you. On July 3rd, when Stalin spoke for the first time to the country, gone was his usual rhetoric. Now came words and phrases of the people coming together for Father Russia, for this great patriotic war, that only by coming together and fighting to their last would they defeat the German hordes coming their way. 
that Napoleon had failed as others had. Germany, Hitler's Germany, would fail too. For the Germans were fighting for glory and territory, but for Russia, this was a matter of life or death. This was the time for courage, coming together, and hard work. All would show their courage. The soldier would fight to the death, while the worker toiled until his or her fingers bled. As for why the Germans were coming, they would be disappointed upon their approach. Everything of value or worth would be taken away before the Germans showed up. If it could not be carried away, it must be destroyed. The enemy was to be left nothing but emptiness and despair. In short, this war had been thrust upon them, despite a non-aggression pact. Russia now stood side by side with Great Britain and America, the latter pledging to supply those threatened by Hitlerism. Russia must rise up and together push back the German threat. The following is a very much abridged version of his speech of July 3rd. Comrades, citizens, brothers and sisters, men of our army and navy, I am addressing you, my friends. The perfidious military attack on our fatherland began on June 22nd by Hitler Germany is continuing. In spite of the heroic resistance of the Red Army, and although the enemy's finest divisions and finest air force units have already been smashed and have met their doom on the field of battle, the enemy continues to push forward, hurling fresh forces into the attack. A grave danger hangs over our country. How could it have happened that our glorious Red Army surrendered a number of our cities and districts to fascist armies? Is it really true that German fascist troops are invincible, as is ceaselessly trumpeted by the boastful fascist propagandists? Of course not. History shows that there are no invincible armies, and never have been. Napoleon's army was considered invincible, but it was beaten successively by Russian, English, and German armies. Kaiser Wilhelm's German army in the period of the First Imperialist War was also considered invincible, but it was beaten several times by the Russian Anglo-French forces and finally smashed by the Anglo-French forces. The same must be said of Hitler's German fascist army today. This army has not yet met with serious resistance on the continent of Europe. Only on our territory has it met serious resistance. And if, as a result of this resistance, the finest divisions of Hitler's German fascist army have been defeated by our Red Army, it means that this army too can be smashed, and will be smashed. As to part of our territory having nevertheless been seized by German fascist troops, this is chiefly due to the fact that the war of fascist Germany on the USSR began under conditions favorable for the German forces, and unfavorable for Soviet forces. The fact of the matter is that the troops of Germany, as a country of war, were already fully mobilized, and the 170 divisions hurled by Germany against the USSR and brought up to the Soviet frontiers were in a state of complete readiness, only waiting the signal to move into action. Whereas Soviet troops had still to effect mobilization and move up to the frontier. There can be no doubt that this short-lived military gain for Germany is only an episode, 
while the tremendous political gain of the USSR is a serious, lasting factor that is bound to form the basis for development of decisive military successes of the Red Army in the war with fascist Germany. That is why our whole valiant Red Army, our whole valiant Navy, all our falcons of the air, all the people of our country, all the finest men and women of Europe, America, and Asia, finally, all the finest men and women of Germany condemn the treacherous acts of German fascists and sympathize with the Soviet government, approve the conduct of the Soviet government, and see that ours is a just cause, that the enemy will be defeated, that we are bound to win. What is required to put an end to the danger hovering over our country, and what measures must be taken to smash the enemy? Above all, it is essential that our people, the Soviet people, should understand the full immensity of the danger that threatens our country, and should abandon all complacency, all heedlessness, and those modes of peaceful constructive work which were so natural before the war, but which are fatal today when war has fundamentally changed everything. The enemy is cruel and implacable. He is out to seize our lands, watered with our sweat, to seize our grain and oil secured by our labor. He is out to restore the rule of landlords, to restore czarism, to destroy national culture and national state existence of the Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Lithuanians, Lets, Estonians, Uzbeks, Tartars, Moldovians, Georgians, Armenians, Azerbaijanians, and the other free people of the Soviet Union, to Germanize them, to convert them into the slaves of the German princes and barons. Thus the issue is one of life or death for the Soviet state, for the peoples of the USSR. The issue is whether the peoples of the Soviet Union shall remain free or fall into slavery. Further, there must be no room in our ranks for whimperers or cowards, for panic-mongers or deserters. Our people must know no fear and fight, and must selfishly join our patriotic war of liberation, our war against fascist enslavers. Lenin, the great founder of our state, used to say that the chief virtue of the Bolshevik must be courage, valor, fearlessness and struggle, readiness to fight, together with the people, against the enemies of our country. This splendid virtue of the Bolshevik must become the virtue of the millions of the Red Army, of the Red Navy, of all the peoples of the Soviet Union. All our work must be immediately reconstructed on a war footing. Everything must be subordinated to the interests of the front and the task of organizing the demolition of the enemy. All our industries must be got to work with greater intensity to produce more rifles, machine guns, artillery, bullets, shells, airplanes. We must organize the guarding of factories, power stations, telephonic and telegraphic communications, and arrange effective air raid precautions in all locations. We must wage a ruthless fight against all disorganizers of the rear, deserters, panic-mongers, rumor-mongers, and we must exterminate spies, divisionists, and enemy parachutists, rendering rapid aid in all this to our destroyer battalions. We must bear in mind that the enemy is crafty, unscrupulous, experienced in deception, and the dissemination of false rumors. We must reckon with all this and not fall victim to provocation. 
In case of forced retreat of Red Army units, all rolling stock must be evacuated. The enemy must not be left a single engine, a single railway car, not a single pound of grain or a gallon of fuel. In areas occupied by the enemy, guerrilla units, mounted and on foot, must be formed. Diversionist groups must be organized to combat the enemy troops, to ferment guerrilla warfare everywhere, to blow up bridges and roads, damage telephone and telegraph lines, set fires to forests, stores, and transports. In the occupied regions, conditions must be made unbearable for the enemy and all his accomplices. They must be hounded and annihilated at every step, and all their measures frustrated. The aim of this national war in defense of our country against the fascist oppressors is not only elimination of the danger hanging over our country, but also aid to all European peoples groaning under the yoke of German fascism. In this war of liberation, we shall not be alone. In this great war, we shall have loyal allies in the peoples of Europe and America, including the German people who are enslaved by Hitlerite despots. Our war for the freedom of our country will merge with the struggle of the peoples of Europe and America for their independence, for democratic liberties. In this connection, the historic utterance of the British Prime Minister Churchill regarding aid to the Soviet Union and the Declaration of the United States Government signifying its readiness to render aid to our country, which can only evoke a feeling of gratitude in the hearts of the peoples of the Soviet Union are fully comprehensible and symptomatic. Comrades, our forces are numberless. The overweening enemy will soon learn this to his cost. Side by side with the Red Army, many thousands of workers, collective farmers, intellectuals are rising up to fight the enemy aggressor. The masses of our people will rise up in their millions. The State Committee of Defense has entered upon its functions and calls upon all people to rally around the party of Lenin-Stalin and around the Soviet government so as to self-denyingly support the Red Army and Navy, demolish the enemy, and secure victory. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Meanwhile, as Germany invaded its eastern neighbor, the only other adversary in the fight 
Britain, led by Churchill, made its reaction known to the world. The now elderly bulldog leader would not take back any of the negative things he had said of communism over the years. But for now, right now, they had a common enemy, a common visceral adversary to hope and freedom. Therefore, Russia, despite its poor start in resisting German aggression, would get all aid that Britain could give. Here is an abridged version of the speech the Prime Minister gave in the House of Commons on June 22nd. Because, why not? I have taken occasion to speak to you tonight because we have reached one of the climacterics of the war. In the first of these intense turning points, a year ago, France fell prostrate under the German hammer, and we had to face the storm alone. The second was when the Royal Air Force beat the Hun raiders out of the daylight air and thus warded off the Nazi invasion of our island while we were still ill-armed and ill-prepared. The third turning point was when the President and Congress of the United States passed the Lease and Lend enactment devoting nearly 2,000 million sterling of the wealth of the New World to help us defend our liberties and their own. Those were the three climaxes. The fourth is now upon us. At four o'clock this morning, Hitler attacked and invaded Russia. All his usual formalities of perfidy were observed with scrupulous technique. A non-aggression treaty had been solemnly signed and was in force between the two countries. No complaint had been made by Germany of its non-fulfillment. Under its cloak of false confidence, the German armies grew up in immense strength along a line which stretched from the White Sea to the Black Sea. And their air fleets and armored divisions slowly and methodically took up their station. Then, suddenly, without declaration of war, without even an ultimatum, the German bombs rained down from the sky upon the Russian cities. The German troops violated the Russian frontiers. And an hour later, the German ambassador who killed the night before, was lavishing his assurances of friendship, almost of alliance upon the Russians, called upon uh, the Russian foreign minister to tell him that a state of war existed 
between Germany and Russia. Thus was repeated on a far larger scale the same kind of outrage against every form of signed compact and international faith which we have witnessed in Norway, in Denmark, in Holland, in Belgium, and which Hitler's accomplice and jackal Mussolini so faithfully imitated in the case of Greece. All this was no surprise to me. In fact, I gave clear and precise warnings to Stalin of what was coming. I gave him warnings as I have given warnings to others before. I can only hope that these warnings did not fall unheeded. All we know at present is that the Russian people are defending their native soil and that their leaders have called upon them to resist to the utmost. Hitler is a monster of wickedness, insatiable in his lust for blood and plunder. Not content with having all Europe under his heel, or else terrorized into various forms of abject submission, he must now carry his work of butchery and desolation among the vast multitudes of Russia and of Asia. The terrible military machine which we and the rest of the civilized world so foolishly, so supinely, so insensately allowed the Nazi gangsters to build up year by year from almost nothing. This machine cannot stand idle lest it rust or fall to pieces. It must be in continual motion, grinding up human lives and trampling down the homes and the rights of hundreds of millions of men. Moreover, it must be fed, not only with flesh, but with oil. So now this bloodthirsty gutter snipe must launch his mechanized armies upon new fields of slaughter, pillage, and devastation. Wherever are the Russian peasants, workmen, and soldiers, he must steal from them their daily bread. He must devour their harvests. He must rob them of the oil which drives their plows, and thus produce a famine without example in human history. And even the carnage and ruin which is victory, should he gain it, he has not gained it yet, will bring upon the Russian people, will itself be only a stepping stone to the attempt to plunge the four or five hundred millions who live in China and the three hundred and fifty millions who live in India into that bottomless pit of human degradation over which the diabolic emblem 
of the fresh teacup flaunts itself. It is not too much to say here this summer evening that the lives and happiness of a thousand million additional human beings are now menaced with brutal Nazi violence. That is enough to make us hold our breath. But presently I shall show you something else that lies behind and something that touches very nearly the life of Britain and of the United States. The Nazi regime is indistinguishable from the worst features of communism. It is devoid of all theme and principle except appetite and racial domination. It excels all forms of human wickedness in the efficiency of its cruelty and ferocious aggression. No one has been a more consistent opponent of communism than I have for the last 25 years. I will unsay no word that I've spoken about it. But all this fades away before the spectacle which is now unfolding. The past, with its crimes, its follies, and its tragedies, flashes away. I see the Russian soldiers standing on the threshold of their native land, guarding the fields which their fathers have killed from time immemorial. I see them guarding their homes where mothers and wives pray. Ah, yes, for there are times when all pray for the safety of their loved ones, for the return of the breadwinner, of the champion, of their protector. I see the 10,000 villages of Russia where the means of existence was wrung so hardly from the soil, but where there are still primordial human joys, where maidens laugh and children play. I see advancing upon all this in hideous onslaught the Nazi war machine with its clanking, heel-clicking, dandified Prussian officers, its crafty, expert agents, fresh from the cowing and tying down of a dozen countries. I see also the dull, dull, docile, brutish masses of the Hun soldiery plodding on like a swarm of crawling locusts. I see the German bombers and fighters in the sky still smarting from many a British Whipping, they're delighted to find what they believe is an easier and a safer prey. And behind all this glare, behind all this storm, I see that small group of villainous men who plan, organize, and launch this cataract of horrors upon mankind. And then my mind goes back across the years to the days when the Russian armies were our allies against the same deadly foe, when they fought with so much valor and constancy and helped to gain a victory 
from all share in which, alas, they were through no fault of ours, Natalie cut out. I have lived through all this, and you will pardon me if I express my feelings and the stir of old memories. But now I have to declare the decision of His Majesty's government. And I feel sure it is a decision in which the great dominions will, in due course, concur. But we must speak out now, at once, without a day's delay. I have to make the declaration. But can you doubt what our policy will be? We have but one aim, and one single irrevocable purpose. We are resolved to destroy Hitler and every vestige of the Nazi regime. From this, nothing will turn us. Nothing. We will never parley. We will never negotiate with Hitler or any of his gangs. We shall fight him by land. We shall fight him by sea. We shall fight him in the air until, with God's help, we have rid the earth of his shadow and liberated its peoples from his yoke. Any man or state who fights against Nazism will have our aid. Any man or state who marches with Hitler is our foe. This applies not only to organized states, but to all representatives of that vile race of Quislings who make themselves the tools and agents of the Nazi regime against their fellow countrymen and against the lands of their birth. These quizlings, like the Nazi leaders themselves, if not disposed of by their fellow countrymen, who could save trouble, will be delivered by us on the morrow of victory to the justice of the Allied tribunals. That is our policy, and that is our declaration. It follows, therefore, that we shall give whatever help we can to Russia and to the Russian people. We shall appeal to all our friends and allies in every part of the world to take the same course and pursue it as we shall, faithfully and steadfastly to the end. We have offered to the governments of Soviet Russia any technical or economic assistance which is in our power and which is likely to be of service to them. We shall bomb Germany by day as well as by night in ever-increasing measure, casting upon them month by month a heavier discharge of bombs and making the German people taste and gulp each month a sharper dose of the miseries they have showered upon mankind. It is noteworthy that only yesterday the Royal Air Force, fighting inland over France, cut down with very small loss to themselves 28 of the Hun fighting machines in the air above the French soil. They have invaded, defiled, and professed to hold. But this is only a beginning. From now, henceforward, the main expansion of our Air Force proceeds with gathering speed. In another six months, 
the weight of the help we are receiving from the United States in war materials of all kinds, especially in heavy bombers, will begin to tell. This is no class war. This is a war in which the whole British Empire and Commonwealth of Nations is engaged without distinction of race, creed, or party. It is not for me to speak of the action of the United States, but this I will say. If Hitler imagined that his attack on Soviet Russia would cause the slightest division of aim or slackening of effort in the great democracies who are resolved upon his doing, he is woefully mistaken. On the contrary, we shall be fortified and encouraged in our efforts to rescue mankind from his tyranny. We shall be strengthened and not weakened in our determination and in our resources. This is no time to moralize upon the follies of countries and governments which have allowed themselves to be struck down one by one when by united action they could so easily have saved themselves and saved the world from this catastrophe. But when I spoke a few minutes ago of Hitler's bloodlust and the hateful appetites which have impelled or lured him on his Russian adventure, I said there was one deeper motive behind his outrage. He wishes to destroy the Russian power because he hopes that if he succeeds in this, he will be able to bring back the main strength of his army and air force from the east and hurl it upon this island, which he knows he must conquer or suffer the penalty of his crimes. His invasion of Russia is no more than a prelude to an attempted invasion of the British Isles. He hopes, no doubt, that all this may be accomplished before the winter comes, and that he can overwhelm Great Britain before the fleets and air power of the United States will intervene. He hopes that he may once again repeat upon a greater scale than ever before that process of destroying his enemies one by one by which he has so long thrived and prospered. And that then the scene will be clear for the final act without which all his conquests would be in vain, namely the subjugation of the Western Hemisphere to his will and to his system. Russian danger is therefore our danger and the danger of the United States, just as the cause of any Russian Fighting for its heart and home is the cause of free men and free peoples in every quarter of the globe. Let us learn the lessons already taught by such cruel experience. Let us redouble our exertions and strike with united strength while life and power remain. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. But it was in Washington, D.C., where Roosevelt was being told by his War Department that the Soviets wouldn't last more than six weeks that occurred the most profound reaction to Barbarossa. As he had throughout his political life, FDR used informal, unofficial intermediaries to gather information or to send a message as touching Germany's invasion of the USSR. So Harry Hopkins, a trusted aide, and so much more, was sent to Moscow to meet with Stalin. Their discussion was frank, and laced with vodka. But Hopkins came back with an assessment that the Russians would surprise the world, and a very detailed shopping list should the USSR be extended material aid from the Lendley's program. But first Hopkins had to convince Stalin that not only was the U.S. not simply using the Soviet Union as a sword against Hitler, but that the president's attitude was one of going all out to beat Hitler. To prove this, although Hopkins was speaking the words, they came directly from the president. FDR had two questions that he wanted answered. First, what would Russia most require that the U.S. could deliver immediately? And second, what would be Russia's requirements on a basis of a long war? The answer showed how much Stalin and his generals had thought over such a possible question. 20,000 anti-aircraft guns a million rifles, and an unspecified number of large-caliber machine guns. Over the long term, he wanted aviation fuel and aluminum for airplane construction. This Stalin followed up with, give us anti-aircraft guns and aluminum, and we can fight for three or four years. He went on to say that American troops would be welcomed on any part of the Russian front, and they could stay in complete control of the American army. Why, if the U.S. just declared war on Nazi Germany right now, her morale might break then and there. Hopkins must have thought, nice try. By the end of October, the first Lend-Lease aid was en route to the Soviet Union. By the end of the war, the U.S. would give Stalin $11.3 billion worth of aid. Last time, we covered the opening moves of Army Group Center, as it encircled the Russians before them that made up the first defensive line, but also was able to move in behind those forces as they fled and had come together and halted just west of Minsk. Just above Army Group Center was Army Group North, led by Field Marshal Ritter von Lieb. Just as had the other Army Groups, his men had stunned and then overran the defensive positions before them. Tasked with capturing or liberating the Baltic states, Group North was then to make for Leningrad, and after that was subdued, or at least cut off, join up with Finnish forces near Lake Ladoga that would be coming south from Finland, and so help capture Leningrad from the north. Under Lieb was two armies of infantry, the 18th and 16th along with Colonel General Eric Hopner's 4th Panzer Division with 6 Army and 2 Motorized Corps, 
Coming up behind them was three security divisions and a single army corps held in reserve. But it would be the tanks of Colonel General Hans Reinhardt and Colonel General Erich von Manstein's 41st and 57th Motorized Corps, respectively, that would be leading the way. Flanking each panzer spearhead and also following it behind would be three army corps of the 18th and 16th armies. It was the men of these units that began what would become known as the Battle of Leningrad. Standing in the way of Lieb and his men was Colonel General Kunetstov in charge of the Northwestern Front and his three armies and two mechanized corps. Of the various fronts, this one was the weakest in the West for Russia, but like the other fronts, had a first line and second line of defense. Those immediately opposing the Germans were the 8th and 11th Armies, supported by the 3rd and 12th Mechanized Corps. Behind them was the second line of the 27th Army. This was an impressive number of men, to be sure, but that was only on paper. This front had men who were partially trained, badly equipped, and, per Stalin's orders to strengthen the defensive line to the south of the marshes, in a state of flux. But Kudnetsov's largest impediment to offering a reasonable defense was Stalin's orders not to deploy or mobilize as it may trigger a response from the Nazis. But that worry was behind them now. When his area was attacked, the German panzers had no trouble breaking through his partially manned and equipped lines. And because the panzers were able to penetrate so far, so quickly, the defensive plans on the books were worse than meaningless. They spoke of holdout positions that were already in German hands, of units of mechanized corps that were already retreating or had been captured or destroyed. Still, Kudnetsov tried, which only earned him more casualties. Just three days into the offensive, the general ordered his ravaged remaining northwestern troops to the western Vina River, just west of Riga, Latvia. It was then that the Soviet Stavka, or High Command, the entity mentioned earlier when covering Stalin's reaction to Barbarossa, ordered Kunetsov to create a new defensive line with his weakened 8th and 11th armies along the western Dvina. The good news for Kunetsov was, and yes, the descriptive good is relative, was he was also to receive the still-fresh 21st, 22nd, and 27th Mechanized Corps. Yet the situation was so confused that the 27th Army of the second line of defense did not get into place in time along the river. This allowed Manstein's 56th Panzer Corps to grab a bridgehead on the river. And through this, Panzer started crossing the river that was supposed to hold up the Germans long enough for additional plans to be made and implemented. And just like that, this latest line, still forming, was compromised. There was nothing for it. Kuznetsov ordered his 8th Army to the north, now en route to Estonia, while the 11th and 27th Armies moved to the east, which pretty much left the way through Peskov and Ostrov, just below Lake Pipus, to Leningrad, now open. To their credit, the Stavka saw this and counter-ordered Kuznetsov on June 29th, to block the way through the areas of Peskov and Ostrov. But it was too late. 
Reinhardt's 4th Panzer Corps was already crossing the Vina and heading northwest to Peskov on June 30th. For the frustrated and probably exhausted Stavka, Kunetskov had had his chance and muffed it. He was replaced by General Sobennikov of the 8th Army. This was effective July 4th, and Sobennikov's orders were simple, if not easy. He was to re-establish the front at all costs and stop the Panzers from going any further through Latvia. Meanwhile, the Panzers were enjoying so much success on the ground. Lieb, who was ordered to do so by the OKW, then ordered his Panzers to continue northwest and make for Leningrad and Lake Ladoka. However, because of all their successes, not just during the opening phase of Barbarossa, but of their successes since 1939, the Germans started getting greedy, or at the very least, started believing themselves to be invincible. While Hopner's 4th Panzer Group made for Leningrad, the infantry was ordered to take Estonia due north to kill or capture all Soviet troops there, while protecting the right flank of the Panzers. It's not that boldness does not serve well in matters military, but here the Nazis were going for broke, sending their armor far ahead, knowing the infantry was already having difficulty in keeping up. Gaps between the men and machines increased, and had the Soviets been any better prepared or armed, would have been able to cause much consternation for the panzers from behind, or mortally engage the infantry to the north. Fortunately for Lieb, such was not the case. Ostrov, along the Stalin defensive line, was taken on July 4th, Peskov on July 8th, which allowed Reinhardt's tanks to enter the Leningrad area. To his right, Manstein's panzers were having equal luck, but then ran into trouble, trying to navigate through swamps before him. Still, only success was the order and the result of the day between June 22nd and July 6th. Estonia was soon to be cleared of Soviet troops as well as Latvia, as the Soviet 8th Army there was pushed ever backward. What's more, the Stalin line, which ran along the entire front, had been seriously breached in the north. Lieb's men and armor had penetrated some 270 miles, or 450 kilometers. The balance of the Baltic states were now in German hands, and Kunetzdorf and his successor had lost 90,000 soldiers, just over 1,000 tanks, more than 1,000 planes, and 4,000 guns. Soon, Lieutenant General Popov of the Northern Front, responsible for Leningrad, would have his turn. To counter this momentum, Popov had ordered a new defensive line to be established south of Leningrad, along the Luga River. But such were his options. This line could only be manned by patched-together forces. Army Group South Because of Stalin's mistake in believing that Germany's main attack would come south of the Pripyat Marshes, Field Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt, commander of Army Group South, did not enjoy the same level of success as did the other two army groups. True, his opponent, Colonel General Kipanos, commander of the Southwestern Front's men, weren't that much better equipped than his comrades to the north. But he did have more of them. Under his command were four armies, 
eight mechanized corps, seven rifle corps, and one airborne corps, and he would use them more effectively than his brother commanders. But even here, it wasn't necessarily true that he was a better commander in the field, but Kirponos had been in constant contact with his border garrisons, and despite Stalin's orders to the contrary, did manage to increase his level of security and hence his level of readiness prior to June 22nd. And like his fellow commanders, Rundstedt did not have complete knowledge of what was before him. Almost equally important, Kirponos had, as an ally, the western Bug River, which meandered through much of the area he was responsible for. Rundstedt's orders were to penetrate into Ukraine territory as far and as fast as they could, to not allow the Soviets to put into place their predetermined stalling plans. His forces were starting from southern Poland, Hungary, and eastern Romania. His 6th and 7th armies and the tanks of Colonel General Ewald von Kleist's 1st Panzer Group would leave southern Poland, just north of Lwów, and dash for the Stalin line, making contact with it about 100 miles, or 150 kilometers, west of Kiev. Meanwhile, other parts of the 6th Army, as well as the 26th Army, would lunge east, just south of Lvov, penetrate the Stalin line, which was closer to them due to the meandering and eventual lining up with the Dniester River to the far south, and then capture bridgeheads along the river Bug, southwest of Kiev, and then again due south of the city, again due to its course. To the far south, a mixture of German forces, along with the Romanian 3rd, 11th, and 4th armies, lined up along the coast of the Black Sea to the northern part of Romania, and would advance due eastward, pierce the Stalin line before them, while also preparing to invest Odessa, as well as cutting off the retreat of Soviet forces who would, by then, be attempting to backpedal. If all went according to plan, Kiev would fall. The bridgeheads established south of there would be prepared for further operations, either to the east, towards Stalingrad, or to the northeast, near Kharkov depending on the fortunes of war or what was deemed best by the OKW. Providing a protective umbrella for all these forces were 750 aircraft under the command of Colonel General Alexander Lohr's 4th Air Fleet. On June 22nd, Kleist's 1st Panzer Group crossed the border of the former southern Poland, smashed into Soviet defenses, and made for the western Bug River. The Soviet 5th Army of Popov was unable to halt their advance. During the night of the first day, General Kirponos was informed of Directive No. 3 from Stalin to counterattack along the entire front. Yet many of his garrison troops were still 240 miles, or 400 kilometers, away. They rushed east as best they could, but with constant German air assaults and limited transportation options, their progress was not impressive. Still, for the next four days, Kirponov tried valiantly to implement Directive No. 3. Because Stalin still believed this was the main attack, Zhukov himself was sent there to handle Kirponov's operations. Yet, despite having the right military hand of Stalin with him, Kirponov's forces reached him piecemeal and were thus sent into battle the same way. 
Yet Kirponos knew that his men could not meet and then stop the Germans head on. So when the 22nd and 15th Mechanized Corps, who reached him first, were ready to deploy, he ordered them to hit the Panzer forces in their flanks. Yet only parts of the 15th had arrived, but were sent in anyway. This did not stop the Panzers from penetrating some 25 miles or 60 kilometers during their initial attack. Soon, other Soviet forces, like the 215th Motorized and 19th Tank Divisions, came forward to engage German Motorized Corps and the armor of the 14th Panzer Divisions, coming east. The fighting was intense, but the Soviets were not experienced enough to effectively coordinate their attacks, and thus lost many men, armor, as well as every regimental commander of the 19th Tank Division. By the second day of the attack, Panzers had reached Lutsk, to the northeast of Lvov. Other Soviet tank divisions were thrown in at the 11th Panzer Division, which slowed them down. But this did not stop the 13th and 14th Panzer Divisions from capturing Lutsk by June 26th. But then, the 299th, 11th, and 75th Infantry Divisions were put in front of the determined 11th Panzer Division, which still managed to capture Dubno, east of Lusk. They were now some 100 miles into Soviet-held territory. By June 26, Kleist's 1st Panzer Group had penetrated far enough to ready themselves to push past Rovno, located just 200 miles or 300 kilometers west of Kiev, to make for the major city of the Ukraine. But by the 26th, Kirponos had assembled the 9th and 19th Mechanized Corps, which was to be his first major counterattack. All he was waiting for was three rifle corps to link up with them. Yet Zukov, in charge of his operations, was not willing to wait. The ranking general sent in the 9th and the 19th, who were still waiting near Rovno. His idea was to get these mechanized forces in between the panzer units now at Lunsk and Dubno, and deal with them piecemeal. Yet between Zhukov's orders, Kirpano's orders, and those of another general, confusion reigned. Still, the tank battle that took place on June 26th to the north and south of Dubno, involving some 2,000 tanks, the largest tank battle yet, stymied the Germans at first. The German 57th Infantry Division, providing support to the Panzers, was forced to fall back some six miles, or ten kilometers. The next day, Zukov ordered in the recently arrived 34th Tank Division to hopefully build on this small victory. Yet between German air power, artillery, and the panzers still in the area, the 34th was severely weakened and only managed to break out and retreat east on July 1st. Even then, they were harassed by German air power. To the north of Dubno, the same situation played out. Meanwhile, a bit further south, on June 27th, the Russian 9th Mechanized Corps commander, Rokossovsky, attacked west, per Zhukov, but, as he only had light tanks with him, was soon knocked back east as well. The next day, June 28th, orders came to the 9th commander again to counterattack, with whatever he had left. But the 9th Corps commander did not comply this time. He deemed it more prudent to instead fall back a bit 
gather his remaining forces, and set up a trap for the approaching panzers of the 13th Division as they came near Rovno. For the first time, German panzers ran headlong into Soviet-massed artillery. Many panzers were lost or damaged, and Rakovsky was able to keep this up for two days, despite German air attacks. It was only after two days of blooding the nose of the panzers that he was ordered to pull back, as other Soviet forces to his north and south were losing ground, thus putting him into an untenable position. Altogether, this above-par defense of the southern front caused a week's delay of Barbarossa's timetable, which would, it turns out, be a part of the reason why Hitler would later order parts of Army Group Center to turn south to help crush the resistance taking place in the Ukraine. Still, the Russians found themselves falling back, ever east, as other parts of the constant reforming defensive line fell back. So, as the Russians retreated, managing to take out some German panzers and infantry units as they did so, but losing many, many more men and tanks than the Germans, various towns of the Ukraine fell to the invaders, who were coming ever closer to Kiev and to the areas to the north and south of it. As this was taking place, Kirponos organized blocking detachments, which were told to shoot any Soviet soldier who retreated east without specific orders. He also began to form People's Militia in Kiev and Kharkov, located some 200 miles or 300 kilometers to the east, to reinforce the defenses of the Kiev region. To the far south, just above and to the northwest of Odessa, as well as the Romanian-Soviet border, the Stavka, out of desperation, just days into the invasion, formed another front, giving it its own commander, Colonel General Tulevnev. He was to use the 9th and 18th Soviet armies to halt the mix of German and Romanian forces opposite them from crossing the boundary waterway of the Prut River. Yet these defensive forces were no more successful than those to the north of them. The enemy easily crossed the river, pushing all before them out of the way. The German 11th Army, working with the Romanian 3rd and 4th Armies, moved east, and within days, Odessa was captured by the Romanians, and the coastline was secured. Because the Germans and the Romanians attacked with such ferocity, General Tulevnev requested, and it was approved, to fall back some 60 miles from the border and establish a new line along the Dniester River, along the Stalin Line. This new line was mostly on paper, as the Germans were close upon the retreating Soviets. But within a few days, the Stavka believed that Tulevnev had overreacted and countermanded their own order, now telling the general to push the invaders back to the Prut River. Tulevnev attempted to do so, but was successful in only establishing a haphazard line in between the Prut and the Dniester River. But this line, in a very short time, too, would go the way of so many other Soviet lines. But it was here, in the far south, that the Russians saw that German armor was susceptible to massed artillery, but that would have to be incorporated later. For now, the southwestern front and the newly formed southern front had suffered 
just as had other Soviet battle zones. By mid-July, these two fronts had lost some 240,000 troops, with 172,000 killed or captured. And they were now less some 4,300 tanks, 5,800 guns, and 1,200 aircraft. What's more, the attackers might have been somewhat held up in the far south, but now there was nothing stopping Rundstedt's 1st Panzer Group or the German 6th Army, just west of Kiev, from turning south and attacking those Soviet forces near Odessa from the rear, thus destabilizing the entire area of southern Russia. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, for those of you who have donated or have bought mugs or uh, CDs or signed up for membership, I'll get to you next time. I just wanted to hurry up and get this out as it's uh, later than I wanted it to be. Uh, I hope you will indulge me the speech by Churchill. I could just listen to the man talk all day long. I did want to say to the members that the next episode that was supposed to come out last month will come out in the next 48 hours. I did record it when I got back from the beach, but I had a head cold, and so I sound like a zombie, which probably isn't what you want to hear. So again, that will, and again, I'm very sorry, but that will come out very soon. I just have to re-record it and put it out. And for those of you who have more commute time than podcasts to listen to, and there's probably not too many of you, um, feel free to check out my history of the life of Caesar and the life of Alexander, and you can find them both on uh, iTunes, and I'm doing them with Cameron Riley, who hosted the magnificent history of Napoleon with the wonderful J. David Markham. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.